when after the service is over and while uh, while Steve is up here taking the family requests, uh, I'll come back there and we'll get it ready. Uh, that's at the end. All right. So John chapter two, we've made it to John chapter two this morning. <clears throat> What I'm going to do this morning is um, is really key to understanding the things that Jesus said to his disciples with regard to with regard to the kingdom and with regard to his second coming, his church, and so it's more of a this is a different sort of sermon. It's more of a it's more of a historical. Uh, historical context that we're going to put this into, and I think as, after it's finished, you'll <clears throat> be able to get more of a uh, more of a visual in your mind as to the truths of these of these passages. Follow with me as we read the first eleven verses of John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now over the approximately the the last six months or so, we have been studying chapter one of John's gospel. We have seen the teaching of who Jesus is as the eternal word existing in eternity Becoming a man in time. But as we look further into this first chapter, we find that Jesus is referred to by no less than seven different titles. In verse 29, he is called the Lamb of God. In verse 38, he is called Rabbi, which means teacher. In verse 41, he is called Messiah which is translated in the Greek, Christ or Christos. 
In verse 49, or verse 34 and 49, he is called the Son of God. In verse 49, he's called the King of Israel. In verse 51, he's called the Son of Man, which was a common title that the Jews would have been very familiar with. In verse 45, he is called Jesus of Nazareth, which was the town he was raised in. In all of these descriptions, the true nature and true person of Jesus Christ is brought forth. His divinity, his deity is seen, and his humanity is seen. We then saw the preparation of Jesus calling his disciples and the testimony of John the Baptist, who pointed everyone to Christ and released his own, his own disciples to follow Christ as the Messiah, especially his own. The third day here in verse 1 of chapter 2 is, <clears throat> is not the third day from the beginning of verse 19 where we see the testimonies of John the Baptist and the disciples. It is the third day from when Philip and Nathaniel were called, which is a culmination or a total of seven days from verse 19. This third day, on this third day, we come to the place of entering the public ministry of Christ. As he displays his glory through miracles and signs with teachings and preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. The public ministry of Christ in John's gospel extends from chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 12. These chapters are often called the book of signs. Chapters 13 to 21 are often called the book of glory. For that speaks of the, of the personal ministry of Christ to his disciples. Now, at the outset of this ministry, we find Jesus and his disciples in the town of Cana of Galilee at a wedding. Cana was a small town, approximately six to eight miles north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. So it's very likely that his family and Jesus himself would have known many people from Cana. And so it's not unusual that They should be invited to this wedding. It should be noted that Jesus was not of the nature of one who would spoil a gathering of people having a good time. There is a a sense in the world of people believing that Jesus was some sort of stick-in-the-mud type person who was always, always somber and morose. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you had a party today and you invited uh, other believers or friends to the party, Jesus would be the life of the party. There would have been many people at this gathering, this wedding feast, that would not have known that Jesus was the Messiah at this point 
or what his mission was. He even tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. However, Jesus was not at the wedding to show off or make a spectacle. He was there to show his deity and to illustrate the emptiness and the inadequacy of the Jews' religion. We see this in the two events that take place in this chapter. And they are back-to-back miracles. One is the turning of water into wine. And like the empty water pots, it speaks of the spiritual emptiness of the Jews' religion and the legal system that they imposed upon the Jewish people. The second was the cleansing of the temple found directly after the wedding where Jesus went into the temple and drove out those who were corrupting it, which it speaks and alleges the corruption of the system that the Jews had had made. We'll get to that, more of that, as we open up the passage. This morning, uh, we're going to do something different. In the narrative, we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the wedding. These would have no doubt been good friends who knew Mary and her children. For we find in verse 2 that Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. People usually don't invite people to weddings whom they don't know. So Jesus would have obviously known these people, this couple that were uh, getting married. The public ministry of Jesus that begins here in chapter 2 is marked by his first miracle of turning water into wine. As the God-man, Jesus, divinity and humanity are inseparably linked. The miracles he performed as a man were performed to prove and authenticate his deity. We see that taught throughout the scriptures. Just a couple of verses. John 3 verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. They obviously, the Jews obviously are now, by, by chapter 3, understanding that Jesus is doing signs and wonders and miracles among the people. Matthew chapter 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Kind of strange since John spent all that time in in at baptizing at Anon in Telling everyone that Jesus was the one to follow. That he was the Christ. The one he came to introduce. Jesus answered him. Sent his disciples to ask. Jesus answered him. Go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. 
The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Acts chapter 2. Peter speaks up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. <clears throat> so Jesus is proving now, as, he's, as, he come, as we come to chapter 2, he is proving now that he is indeed the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one who came from heaven, the Messiah. And he is proving it by doing miracles and wonders. Much different scenario, much different attitude, a much different thing than we see now. Perpetrated by false teachers who can do no miracles. As we look at John's account of the works and miracles of Jesus, it should be noted that John records eight miracles to present Jesus as the God-man. Eight miracles. These eight miracles are certainly not all the miracles that Jesus performed. For he did literally thousands and thousands of miracles in his three-year ministry. And many of them in one day, 24-hour day at a time. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 21, 25 attest to this. Needless to say that every miracle that Jesus did was a testament to his divinity and proved his Messiahship. Now we find all eight of these miracles that John lists in chapters 2 through 12. There are four things that I want you to notice with regard to this first miracle in Cana of Galilee. They are, first, the culture of Galilee. Second, the circumstances at the wedding. Third, the contribution of the Lord. And fourth, the consequence or the result of the miracle. If we were able to look back, and it's been discovered by archaeologists, many things have been discovered in Galilee, the area of Galilee, by archaeologists. If we were able to look back, we would see that the wedding, the wedding feast was the major social event in the Galilean culture. Weddings in Galilee were different from weddings anywhere else in Israel or the nations surrounding Israel. Today we have certain customs and weddings in our country. They vary from place to place. I remember when we went to Australia... Uh, in Australia, there were some customs that I was not aware of, and I had to quickly adjust myself to uh, during the wedding ceremony. 
To understand the story that we have here and the other miracles that take place in John's gospel, the analogies in them, we must understand the importance of the Galilean wedding. What it looked like. What were their customs and what, what did the culture, what, what did the culture have in weddings that the other cultures around them did not have? It is appropriate that Jesus would begin his public ministry at a wedding because all that Jesus would say from here on in about the work, his work of salvation and his second coming can be related, <clears throat> can be related to the Galilean wedding ceremony. A wedding in Galilee, and I'm going to give you now historical <clears throat> background. And when we go through this passage beginning next week, you'll be able to see all of this <coughs> in your mind. <coughs> Excuse me. There are several steps that took place in a Galilean wedding. First was the making and obtaining of a marriage covenant. This took place at the gate of each town or city. And... People would come to the gate as the families of the groom and the family of the bride met at the gate. And the two fathers, the father of the bride and the father of the groom, would meet at the gate and they would make a marriage covenant. This covenant was obtained by the father of the groom who had chosen the one, the woman, that he wanted his son to marry. Galilean marriages were preordained. And that goes all the way back to Abraham and his sons. Abraham, if you'll recall, sent his his servant, Eliezer, to find a wife for his son. So the, it was a prearranged occurrence. <clears throat> the father of the groom would have in his possession... Uh, a document that would speak of the covenant they were making. <clears throat> and he always, he also had, he also had a price, uh, that he would bring to purchase the wedding that he would give to the father of the bride. <clears throat> you can call it a, a dowry. All this took place in the gate of the city where all legal transactions occurred in the sight of the people and in the sight of the elders of the town. <clears throat> Second <clears throat> was the acceptance of the marriage by the bride. When she had made known her desire to marry the groom, both of them would drink of a cup of wine and then both of them would go to a ceremonial pool called a mikvah. The mikvah was a cistern that had been hewn from rock and it was filled with rainwater. It was not water that was carried from a river or a pond or a creek. 
It was all rainwater, which was considered to be the most pure water there was. In the mikvah was a stairway or steps that went down into the water. This mikvah had seven steps. Each step represented one of the days of creation. And as I said, it's filled with rainwater, which fell from heaven. So it was considered pure. They would each go down into the mikvah alone. And they would come out of that place alone after having ceremonially washed themselves in this rainwater, which symbolized the purity of cleansing. Sort of like, it's sort of like uh, the ritual of baptism today, which symbolizes the washing away of one's sin, having had their sins washed away in Christ. After they had done this and come out of the mikvah, they were considered ceremonially clean. That brings us to the third part of the, of the marriage. The third part of this marriage was the legal contract that bound the two together as a married couple under the marriage covenant. <clears throat> this was done by the bride and groom standing underneath what's called a hoopah. Uh, it's sometimes they're still used today. It's simply a, uh, it's simply a canopy that's raised up with a, with a top over it. <clears throat> the bride and groom stand underneath it and they say their vows to one another. <clears throat> this hoopah symbolized the Spirit of God hovering over the marriage covenant and sanctifying it, setting it apart, setting these two people apart for each other from everyone else in the world. <clears throat> After they had gone through this ceremony of standing under the hoopah and, and legalizing the contract with each other, the father of the groom would give gifts to the bride and the bride and the groom would then give a, a ring to the bride, showing the genuineness of his love and his promise to take her as his as his wife. <clears throat> After this was done, and at this point, the two were considered married or betrothed to each other. This is where. Mary was at when she was found to be with child. <clears throat> she had already gone through all of this uh, with Joseph. They had made the legal contract with one another. They were betrothed to one another. But they had not yet come together. Very different from our marriage customs today. And though they were married legally and betrothed to each other, they would not live together or consummate the marriage for another year. An entire year would go by. During this year, the groom 
would return to his father's house where he lived. Jewish families lived all together in in single structures, much like much like European families live uh, in uh, Italy and uh, France. Uh, a lot of in Lebanon, they they all lived together. So the the groom would return back to his father his father's home, and he would then begin to get ready to receive his bride when the time was right. He would build a, a room onto his father's house that would be the room or the dwelling place of he and his future wife. He would also begin to prepare the feast for the marriage. The bride was also busy during this time. She would collect everything needed for the, her wedding dress and the dresses of her bridesmaids. She would make all the preparations necessary. She had to be ready. For she did not know when her bridegroom would come for her. And so she would make their, the dresses and everything was ready. And when nighttime came, they would, they would get their lamps filled with oil and they would keep their lamps burning all night long as they slept in their clothes waiting for the sound of the bridegroom to come. Fourth was the wedding procession. After a year of preparation, the groom, having finished the room that he had prepared and everything for the feast being ready, would go to his father and tell his father that he was prepared and that he wanted to go get his bride. But it was not up to the bridegroom when he went to get his bride. It was up to the groom's father. And only the father of the groom knew when that time would be. Traditionally, he did not know the day nor the hour that he would retrieve his bride. It was a day known only to his father. And once the father had seen that all preparations were made... And that the son was ready, his son was ready to receive his bride, that the feast preparation was ready. He would then go in the middle of the night, midnight or after. He would wake his son up and all of the people that were with him. And he would say to his son, go get your bride. The son would then jump up. And wake everybody up. He would grab what was called a shofar. Or a trumpet made from a ram's horn. And he would blow that trumpet. And they would make all kinds of noise. As they marched through the town to the bride's father's house. When the people of the town... 
who had been invited to the wedding heard the sound of the trumpet. They would get up and come out into the street and join the procession to the bride's father's house. As they made their way toward the house of the bride, she would have already gotten up. She would have her lamps. The bridesmaids would have had their lamps. They would be standing in the street waiting for the bridegroom to show himself coming down the street. She could hear the trumpet sounds and the clamor. The bridegroom would have brought with him a litter. It was uh, two poles with a seat attached to it in the middle. And that litter would be brought and sat down in front of the bride. She would then very cautiously and with great humility seat herself in the seat of the litter. And she would be lifted into the air. By two men who would hold the poles of the litter. And she would be carried in the air. To the bridegroom's father's house. They called it flying the bride. Everyone is following. The people invited were following the procession. It now reaches the groom's father's house. The bride, having been carried there on this litter, would be set down and she would go into the father's, the groom's father's house where the feast had, had been prepared, the wedding feast had been prepared. And that brings us to the last part of this, which is the wedding feast itself. Which is what we see here in John chapter 2. All of the other things have been done to this point. And so what we find is that the trumpets have already been blown. The groom has already gone to the bride's house. He has already retrieved his bride. She has been flown to his father's house where he has built this room. They enter into his father's house and there... They go into a feast that has been set before them. And all of the people that were invited to the wedding feast are there. And the door to the father's house is shut. And nobody gets in. And nobody leaves for seven days. And they feast for seven days. As soon as the Bride and groom reach the father's house and they go into the father's house. The groom takes his bride into their new dwelling place and they consummate the marriage physically. While everyone waits. And then they, when they come back out, everyone applauds and they begin the celebration. For seven days they feast. Much different than our customs. All of this bears a great deal of symbolism as Jesus relates certain truths 
to his disciples. And by the way, remember, this only took place in Galilee. Had Jesus settled in Judea, none of this would have been meaningful. God intended for his son to be raised in Nazareth of Galilee. So how does this, what does the symbolism speak of? I've listed the things for you. First, the covenant God made with his church is one in which he makes the payment for his son's bride. This was all prearranged before the foundation of the world. The only difference is here is that the church, as the bride of Christ, does not have a father to make the analogy whole. And so God paid the price, God the Father paid the price to himself as the bride's father. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Second, the spiritual cleansing of them going into the mikvah and washing themselves ceremonially relates to water baptism, which symbolizes the washing of the of water by the word. It symbolizes it. By the way, we're going to have a baptism near the end of October, and we have quite a few people that that are going to be baptized at this next baptism. We see this in Ephesians 5, Acts 1 and 2. And also the gifts given by the groom's father who made a substantial gift to the, to the father of the bride. God gives his gifts to his church. As we have seen in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Third, just as the bride was to be busy preparing herself for her bridegroom's return, we are to be busy about our bridegroom's business. We are to, we are to occupy or to do business for, for Christ until he returns. And we do this fully clothed in his righteousness, waiting for his return. For we do not know the hour or the day in which he will return for us. Number four, just like the bridegroom blew his trumpet to call the, to call those invited to the wedding, Jesus will have God's trumpet blown to call his church up to meet him in the air and he will fly his church to himself and take them to his father's house in heaven. Beautiful pictures. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Last of all, when we've all been called away to meet the Lord in the air, we will be taken to the marriage feast of the Lamb where we will be celestially united to our Lord forever in new, immortal, incorruptible bodies that have been made pure and clean and sinless and spotless and blameless by our God. Listen to 
Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. In fact, turn there with me. I want you to follow along as we read this beautiful passage. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Can you see it in your mind? Can you follow from the gate of the city and all that took place? Covenant being ratif- uh, being made between the bride and the groom and their families. Can you see the, the son going to his father's house and preparing a place for his new bride? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself. To where I am, you there, you'll be also. Can you hear... The trumpets sounding as they walk through the streets of the city to collect his bride. And as she gets into that litter and she's flown away to his father's house. And as they consummate their marriage and they feast together and they celebrate and they become one. To be together forever. All these things revealed by Jesus were understood by his disciples. Because each one of them were Galileans. And they understood the Galilean marriage ceremony and what it stood for. So when Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, they they pictured this wedding. When he said, I'll come and receive you to myself, they pictured the wedding. When he talked about going to his father's house, they pictured the wedding. Now, there's much more in this passage than just this historical context. And we'll start in that next week. But I hope that that helps you to see and visually in your mind see what's taking place here as Jesus does this first miracle. And his disciples were with him. All right. Well, I'm done for today. Um, Let me just make an announcement or two before we go. 
uh, uh, before we show the video, 